take a minute to hear what they have to say. Maybe they have something that you don't know. And it's really important for us to talk about it. Otherwise, nobody grows. I had a world-class sheep hunter in camp with us, and he said multiple times, this is the most sheep-like behavior I've ever seen in my life. I'm not walking onto some unit, passing a 340 bull on opening day, just to learn that a 340 bull doesn't exist on that unit, and I should have shot that. Until you've done multiple sheep hunts and finally had one come together, or five elk hunts like you, and it finally comes true, you don't realize what a reward, how hard it is to work for something like that. This is Ryan Carter with DC Outfitters, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever, whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first puck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. (laughs) I shit you not, man. I'm the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Hartice, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Podcast Network. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, y'all. So here we are. Final day of Western Hunt Expo. And we're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, it is, it is, it isn't exhausting. And um, so exhausting, as a matter of fact, that we've probably been talking for... Oh, good. Half hour. Uh-huh. Half hour. And uh, I finally did it. I, I did not hit the record button. I'm not sure what happened, but... Uh, it's all good. So... We're recording now. So we'll just uh, recreate some of this magic here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, one of the things we got into talking about 
that I, I thought was really valuable is hunting the rut versus hunting preseason. We talk about some of these units you got. You got these giant-ass units, lifetime draws, and you want to you be getting these guys the biggest elk you possibly can. And one thing you mentioned was that you hate hunting the rut. Uh, and, no, I don't hate it. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say, yeah, I hate hunting the rut, but... You could say that I, I don't like trophy hunting the rut. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. So why... You, maybe explain a little bit why you dislike hunting well, the rut. I, so I guide... Um, I guide in Utah, southern Utah specifically, on limited entry units. Uh, what that means, it's it's not over over the counter type stuff. These tags are few and far between. Um, typically, given away on a lottery system. Uh, residents, it takes a good twenty years to pull these tags. Non residents, uh, even if you're at the max point pool, which is like twenty five or twenty six, you're still I, one in six lifetimes to pull these tags because the opportunity it is very outweighed by the amount of people putting in. So it, it's nice. It, it makes it fun. I'm chasing an older age class. Typically on these units, there's a lot of elk. So it's not like it's a boring hunt. Even on bad years, I see a lot of elk. They're just not as big. Um, but with those kind of tags, there's a lot of pressure. When you've waited 20 plus years for a tag or this state offers auction tags that they set a couple aside it so that the public, if they want to invest their money into purchasing a tag, they can. But even at that, because the demand's so few and far between, they're, they're, it's really high. These tags, uh, we bought, Kyle Ostrom bought one probably for an archery tag for forty one grand the other night. I think the other one sold for 72000 Bam. Yeah, they're a lot of money. It's nice because... There is opportunity that, like, anyone can do that. Like, you don't have to be, you know, Bill Gates to come drop money on these tags, although it helps. Anyone can do it. There's a few tags that I may pick up if I get slow enough that, really, it's cost of a four, four-wheeler, you know, 15 grand or so. And so the opportunity's there, and it's really nice. But the demand is super high. It puts a lot of pressure on these guys that have tags to do well. And so... It is tough. It is a trophy unit. It is sometimes a once-in-a-lifetime tag. So these guys want to kill big bulls. And that's why, like, the rut is hard. I'll call in a lot of young bulls. Like, it's fun. I would never complain about it. Not in a million years. But the odds of bringing in something that's trophy class, one in 200 bulls. You'll call in a lot of elk before that all comes together. So... I like preseason. I chase things a little bit different than most guys. So, I mean, we got preseason. We've got rut hunting. We've got late season. I feel like there's, I mean, you want to talk about is the plethora of information that's available on elk hunting. That I'd say 90% of the information out there is on, like, September hunting the rut. Then you got maybe, you know, 5 per, five to 8% on hunting late season. You don't really, I don't feel like anybody ever really talks about preseason hunting or i guess pre-rut hunting yeah. of elk and like how would you hunt those differently say compared to a rut hunt or you know how does their behavior different during that time well it's just like any animal uh 
if you can glass, you glass them, you put them to bed, you wait till the wind shifts, get on top of them, sneak in. Um, Killing any animal doesn't require really a whole lot. You can wrap a lot, every podcast you've ever listened to, into just the fact of getting the wind right. Um, We discussed this a little bit before we lost, but, (laughs) man, uh, you know, you you can really simplistically set a lot of hunts just based about finding the wind, and you brought up covering ground. Now, my point, ground can be covered preseason. It doesn't have to be, like, right during the day of the hunt. You can get a lot figured out before the hunt goes down, have the stage set and be done on day one. A good guide does that. That's that's the job. Um, but uh, preseason is nice. I, um, in my opinion, elk don't travel as much preseason. And so knowing that much information, um, I capitalize on trying to figure out, like, where their little home zone is. Sometimes it's a little six-mile radius. Sometimes it's ten. But I try to figure out where home is and just get on top of these elk. I don't glass. Uh, my prime spots, I, I rarely carry binoculars. Like, it, it's so tight. When you do get in on them, assessing them is pretty easy. So it, it, what I do is a little bit different than most guys. But I, I still think it can be said, like, preseason just allows you to simplistically hunt them like any other animal. You're chasing elk like mule deer. A lot of times it's, it's, it's a matter of glassing, finding, and sitting. And sitting's a really valuable asset, something that I didn't do much of as a kid, and I do a lot more now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's you're developing. you gotta, you got to have that patience, especially when you're hunting. You want to hunt like a trophy class bull. you got to have that patience and that willingness to pass on a lot of smaller stuff too yeah for sure you know one thing we were talking about was you know the the quote-unquote dirty word i just used right there of of trophy hunting you know i think it's you know we really got into this but i think it's important to bring it up again is just it's only a dirty word because it hasn't been defined correctly in in media these days you know it's because we're not having the conversations we need to have with people so they understand what that actually means. Yeah, we dove we dove into this and we went down a rabbit hole. It'd probably be better for us to just simplistically put it yeah. like trophy trow hunting's only a dirty word to people who haven't thought the whole process through. Um, trophy hunting in, in any place uh, when we set up uh, units or goals for our wildlife herds, one of the first things we try to define is age class. Age class is what kind of determines the health of the herd. Some places can have an older age class. Some have to have young. Either way, like what what ends up happening is if we let animals get too old, they stop breeding. They stop rutting. They well, they'll still rut, but they won't rut like breed cows. They get aggressive and old and ornery, just like any other old man does, and the herd will start to decline. So by setting up age class units. We've really looked at what our best area is for the health of that specific herd in that specific area. And then we try to manage harvest objectives based on that. Trophy hunting can have a bad meeting, but, you know, to people that don't like the grip and grin and never looked into what it is. Um, yeah, it, it looks bad. It's and, and it's fine. You know, I 
really believe people have to walk their own line about what's important and what's not and be willing to listen to people. Um, I've had conversations with one of the, some of the most staunch, like anti-hunting, trophy hunting crowds, but because I'm so versed in what I feel is right and, and if they're willing to listen, a lot of the time they walk away with a whole different perspective of what it actually is we do in hunting, especially our North American model. It's a lot different than everywhere else, and it's pretty remarkable. So if everyone kind of has a well-educated thought process, like when the conversations pop up, it's really important for us to express it, share it, but also listen. You know, like I, you would hope they're listening to you. Take a minute to hear what they have to say. Maybe they have something that you don't know, and it's really important for us to talk about it. Otherwise, nobody grows. Well, you can't reach someone if you don't understand where they're coming from. Like, if you don't take the time to listen to someone, why are they going to sit and listen to you? If you understand more of their perspective on why they, you know, whether they dislike hunting or dislike meat or whatever it happens to be, if you understand more about their reasons behind that, you can speak to them more competently in a more educated fashion in a way that's more likely to reach them and and. It maybe not fully convince them of your point, but at least open them up and get them to understand why this is important. You know, why why chasing these, these older age class animals is critical to... I mean, it's a pretty straightforward, simple fact. It's it's for the sake of the herd, and it's to introduce that new, those new genetics into the bloodline. Um, it's simple stuff, and if you take the time to say it in a way that they'll understand, it's, it's going to simplify... It's going to open them up a lot better absolutely um so as uh, what we were getting into right as i realized i double punched the button and uh probably got like two seconds of actual recording uh, <laughs> was you know we're here in uh, uh we're here in in kind of the middle of draw season you know everyone's figuring out their units and where they want to hunt and what they want to chase for the year and uh where they want to put in um and so you know i love I love just talking about a little little inspiration for the season and kind of some, you know, you, you've guided quite a few, uh, you've killed quite a few elk or been responsible or helped out killing quite a few elk over the past couple of years. What are some of, some of the favorites out of that? You've got to have some that, that stick out a little bit more than like others. Like since our last podcast or like... By Great, last post, podcast, do you mean the one like or... 20 minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I almost well, we spit water get, We didn't get into stories. Uh, you know, I, I've been guiding a long time. I, I got a lot of stories. Um, I, you know, the, the nice and bad thing about COVID was, man, I got out a lot. I, I don't know. I've picked up some of my best sets of sheds. I've killed a couple really big whitetails. We we killed a 460 inch bull in Arizona last year. Like we've killed 460 a, inch. Yeah, I, I want to hear about that sucker. Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> that's one of those conservation tags. This is one of those. It's a touchy subject. Uh, not outside of the hunting world, but within the hunting world. Some states, you know, Arizona or Utah offers. Uh, lots of conservation permits on smaller units for acquirable attainable type stuff that there's there's a number of tags we can purchase here some states uh arizona nevada like they only offer one or two and typically when they 
sell these tags. Um, they are very expensive because of the demand. You know, basic uh, marketing principle. If the yeah. supply's low, the demand's high, costs go up. Um, Arizona, Nevada, these these governor type conservation permits can run, you know, half a million dollars at time. I think one sold last night for four hundred and ten thousand dollars. Jeez. Um, a lot of people don't like the hunting's in that direction, but at the same time, a lot of people don't understand the the purpose and where all that money goes and why it's important. So it's always touchy. Are these, are these those tags where you pretty much you draw it and you can hunt anywhere you want in the state kind of a thing? Or um, Arizona's is that way, you know. Uh, Utah is a little bit different. Nevada has a statewide type permit. Um, well, and Utah does too. It's it's not as uh, as sought over, uh, you know. So this tag was in Arizona. Arizona, the way their conservation permit works, it starts August fifteenth. It ends August fourteenth the following year. Oh wow! Typically, Arizona, these guys get two seasons when they buy this tag. So it it typically costs more than most states because it's almost like ha- getting to hunt two years of the same elk if you wanted to. And in Arizona, it's an interesting place. Um, it's there's a lot of outfits, there's a lot of outfitters, there's a lot of do-it-yourself hunters, and uh, you know what? The the uh, what do I call it? The the temperature, the community there is uh, very cutthroat. Yeah, I, I and I'm not used to that. I when I go into my areas, I I know the other outfitters, I know half the do-it-yourself hunters that are hanging their cameras by mine. We talk, we do our things. It's pretty peaceful for the most part. Um, there's some portions of like Southwest Utah where the mule deer scene is very cutthroat. And, and I've known it my whole life and seen it. And it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's just part of the game. It's public land. But So Aaron, when you say cutthroat, like what do you mean? Well, it, when you get four or five guys chasing the same animal because it's of the class you want to chase... Uh, guys will do some shady things, and I, you know, I don't want to point fingers or say what the shady things are because okay. then people learn and they do shady things. It's not important, and they're just not, and, and not that any of it's illegal. Half the time, it's there. It's just not very ethical, and I, I'm not pointing fingers at outfitters. I, everybody's kind of guilty of it in a certain way, and so I experience that to a different degree in Arizona, but. Hey, we had a good time. Um, we found a bull. We, we bought the tag for a bull. I was helping a guy with a lot of money who wanted to find a big bull. His his objective wasn't to kill one of the biggest in the world. He just wanted something bigger than he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew of a bull in Arizona I liked. I reached out to an outfit that had the most intel on him, and we booked a hunt. I Yeah, the tag was expensive. To be honest, I can't remember what he paid. Um we booked these guys. The bulls, we the first bull we were going after, he didn't grow. You buy these tags like right now. It's February 13th. We, a lot of them sold last night. So you don't know what's going to happen come August, how big these bulls are going to be. Yeah. The bull we actually bought the tag for went from a 430 type bull to a 390 type bull, which 390 is still an amazing bull, but for whatever he paid, say $200,000 or whatever. Um, we wanted to find something a little bigger. So we kept looking. We found a typical that was in the 430s that I really liked. 
Um, we set our sights on him, started trying to figure him out, and one of the tag holders from the previous year that hadn't killed, killed him. And he did a great job. So you shake his hand, tell him good job, go find something else. Um, a bear hunter found this bull while he was out scouting for bears, posted him on social media. One of the guys for the outfit that was, the, I mean, they were spearheading this hunt, right? Like, I'm just there. My role with all this was simply almost consulting. Okay. He, You know, he's done a few elk with me. He, he trusts my judgment. So my role was to look over the bulls they threw our way, ensure that they were as big as what they were saying, go he, down. He knew you, trusted you already. Right. And he knows you didn't didn't really guide down there, but he wanted your input yep. just to make sure he wasn't getting the wool pulled over. So his eyes. once the bull was found, I had to go down, take a look at him, make sure he was as big as what we thought. Blah blah blah. So that was that was my role in the whole thing, and it was cool. Uh, these guys, this bear hunter found this bull. He posted him up. One of the guys knew. Uh, we had him pull the video. Went down, took a look at the bull. I mean, he was a world class type bull, perfect for what we needed. Um, we had two, three guys go sit down on him for, I think they were down there for 17 days. Damn. Uh, lost the bull, had a, had a, another hunter that was trail camming the area, had a buddy with the tag later that year that was, had gone down to check his camera, kick the bull out. We had to relocate. That's when I got on the scene. They couldn't find him. I got on route to go help and... They kicked him up on the way I was there. So then I spent the next 10 days with them just kind of watching the bull, sizing him up, getting his pattern down. And when opening day came, we filled the tag. It was like that simple. It rarely works out that way. But I think his headgear was so heavy, he just didn't move much. You know, he, <laughs> literally, I've never seen this kind of behavior in elk. Elk, my elk, uh, migrate huge distances every single day, uphill to water, downhill, hitting benches, travel corridors. They're gone. This bull hit the same bed multiple days in a row. Like, I, I had a world-class sheep hunter in camp with us, and he said multiple times, this is the most sheep-like behavior I've ever seen in my life huh. on an elk. And, and I, I didn't disagree, but I don't know sheep that well. So... It, it played out perfect. It was a lot of fun. There was some controversy in there. Like, I just because Arizona is the way it is. It, it wasn't anything. Nothing was done illegally. Everything was done with fair handshakes and happiness. And I, I think when everyone left camp, there was nothing but hugs and backslaps, and everything was good. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a video published. Like when this bull died, the outfit that was spearheading this called all their guides to come see. So a lot of the pictures, there's a bunch of guys there. It painted a picture of took 30 guys to kill this elk. Uh, it was this big like Ringling Brothers circus thing and roads were cut off. And about every bad rumor you've ever heard came out. None of it was true. It was honestly a good time between a couple guys and. I was just grateful to be there and see something of that magnitude. Yeah. Um, nothing but absolute gratitude on my end to be a part of something like that. Well, you get you get that, must, oh, the must-be-nice crowd coming out and just trying to find that, yeah. any reason why that happened for that guy. Like, any any way to invalidate 
invalidate that guy's success. Well, that's that's the portion within our own that's poison, right? Mm-hmm. Like explaining trophy hunting to a non-hunter is a totally different conversation. Once you're within our own demographic, with our own circles, I mean, really, hunting's an alpha type thing. You know, you don't you don't carry a lot of betas through here. There's a lot of introverts. We don't really discuss between each other because a lot of these guys spend a lot of time alone on the freaking mountain. Um, I, you know, it, it, it takes all types, and yeah, there's some always some weird jealousy and and bad talk. I, you, to be perfectly honest. I didn't mind any of it. I, I didn't listen to it because I just wanted to leave that with the best experience possible. And I'll remember that till the day I die as one of the most humbling things I've ever seen. So I can't even I'm going to have to go. I'm sure you have some pictures up oh yeah. of that. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and look through because I can't even imagine what that would look like, like that size of a, a bull. Yeah. Well, and he, this bull was cool. You, I, you know, the the bull I wanted to kill the second bull not the one we bought the tag for but the one we found and and got killed early that was my dream bull a 430 inch clean six like nothing more incredible it's it's hard to even imagine something like that walks this bull we killed um, was incredible in a different way because when you talk about non-typical characteristics in, in, in any antlered animal I, mule deer, white tails, whatever. You talk about extra cheater points, extra brow tines, extra split main beams. Um, of those characteristics, this bull had all of them. Oh, wow. Um, elk have a thing called a devil point that comes out of their brow tines. Um, he had those both sides. Uh, elk have a weird characteristic in certain areas where they get these triple brow points. It's a, It's pretty much an extra G2 that comes out of the other G2. He had those on both sides. He had split main beam on his left side. He had split G5s. Like, every characteristic, non-typical characteristic that you would want in an elk, he had it. But the f- cool thing is he had it on both sides all the way through. So he was so, as, as typical of a non-typical as you can get. Worded perfectly. <laughs> yep. And that's what made him cool. He, I think, uh, I hate saying because I don't remember, but... I'm pretty sure we had to score him non-typical Boone and Crockett because one of those triple brows touched at the base. So it had to be considered a a, a branching point. So that kicked him into the non-typical pool. Like, Boone and Crockett is the most, seriously, bullshit, like, (laughs) scoring system ever made. Um, If we were to start really doing this and if we wanted to give credit to everything we would do some kind of water displacement test like they do in europe to give these animals their true credit for what they are because boone and crockett will will take an animal that should have been number five in the world but because the the extra point came off below the g4 that point gets discredited twice or because the crowning part of the main beam comes after the G5 and not in front of it, we have to discredit the extra 10 inches that were there. It's just air. Who scores air? <laughs> it's the dumbest thing in the world. But uh, all that set aside, the rules are there to, you know, we do those things because it's important. Yeah. Um, I think he went non-typical with Boone and Crockett at 460-something. 
and I think he went typical on SCI at 468. Damn. So that's how weird he was, was he hit both categories, typical and non-typical. You know, that's, I think, to some extent, you know, we, we talk about it. I think that's uh, all of our, our dream at one point. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying to get a, a 460. Again, don't get me wrong, that thing walks out in front of me. I'm, well, I'm probably not going to be shooting. I'm probably going to be wet in my pants and forgetting, forgetting how to work my bow or my rifle. But, um, you know, I mean, I think that's, to some extent, every guy wants to get at least one big bull. You know, something, whether it goes into Pope and Young and Boone and Crocker, SCI, you know, something that goes into the record books. Not so much because, like, I want to be in the record books. But it's just, it's kind of proving to yourself that you're, you can do it. Yeah. Um, I think that's. Well, that's, that's why the grip and grit, you know, people that. It was a long time, maybe like three years ago, all these people made a push to get rid of the grip and grin. I remember. And all these dipshits, and they're my friends. I can still call them dipshits. <laughs> We're taking these somber photos with these animals, no smiles, trying to show respect. And you got to be grateful they're showing respect. I am a huge fan of the grip and grin. I don't, I don't give a shit if a dude's sitting on top of it. Until you've actually accomplished something like some of these guys have done, you know, till you've, till you've done multiple sheep hunts and finally had one come together or five elk hunts like you and it finally comes true, you don't realize what a reward, how hard it is to work for something like that. And, and I don't care what people think. Our role, our gosh damn role is to kill these animals. Is it murder? Hell yes it is. But is it respectful? Of course it is. We're going to butcher the animal. We're going to take off everything we possibly can. Everything that we know how to eat, we're going to take home. We're going to process it. We're going to put it in our into our bodies, and hopefully, we're going to go do it again the very next year. Like I, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I readily admit this is murder, and I'm a part of it. But you know, a lot of people, it's touchy, and I don't know. It's I think it's important we recognize what our role is and be okay with it. Yeah, it, it's really it's it's who we are. It's okay. It's. Uh, I think you also just titled this episode. <laughs> Which is what? This is murder, and I'm part of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm cool with that. I like it. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's, you know, again, it comes back to defining defining those terms. You know, you talked about that. Like, people say trophy hunting, and immediately it's, like, conjures up these uh, these pictures of, like, I just grab the antlers, hack off, you know, hack them off the head and, like, drag it out and just leave the whole body. I'm like, okay, I guess that happens, but you want to know what happens when that happens the game warden comes up and people start getting very angry and then when they find that person they lose their ability to hunt uh, for a long time if not lifetime and that we call them a poacher not a hunter right like i don't know i don't know of any state here in the u.s as far at least as far as big game that doesn't require you to i mean some states require you to like strip those bones like take rib meat even um but uh, I don't know of any state here in the U.S. that doesn't require you to fully strip that sucker down and take all the meat out with you. I know some that even require you to have all the meat out before you even can take the the hide, the antlers, and the the cape. Yeah, I, I, there's different rules. There, there's silly rules. There's really good rules. I think those are good good rules. But that you know that it's really important. That one thing that scares a lot of hunters and and it's a good thing to address on on your podcast specifically because 
I know how, where you've come from and what you're doing here. I, I think it's really important to stress mentoring other people. Mm-hmm. This sport in particular, because it is death, that is our job. That's what we're doing. They put a lot of regulation on us. Um, so walking into this as a newcomer, I am sure it's terrifying. You read those rule books and no primer in the gun, uh, 403 inches of square inches of orange on your body. Like, I mean, it is rule after rule after rule after rule to, to what you have in your truck, to what gun you can actually hunt with. I mean, I am sure it's terrifying. It, it's nice for me that I grew up with my grandpa gun hunting, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, at some point I picked up a bow and I haven't gone back. But I, I had my grandpa kind of mentor me. I had my first steps there, and I, I knew some stuff. This, this uh, what we do is very overregulated, and, and with good reason. And, and the more technology that comes in, the more regulation we're going to have. And it's fine. I think it's really important to have rules. I think it's really important to look at who's being successful and who's not, why they're successful. And, man, if, if this is being so successful that... We're filling every tag, and the unit can't control that. We figure out how to put a dampener on it so that the animals have a chance. Uh, you know, some of these states, Utah in particular, we start hunting elk August 18th. The hunts roll until February 1st. It used to be very important that our fishing game step back, give these animals two-week breaks every now and then. It doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, I... There's some parts of our conservation plan that is really spot on and other that have been piss poor managed. Utah used to have 2.2 million deer in this state. 2.2 million. Do you know how many we have now? I'm guessing in the hundred thousands, maybe. Around 70,000. Seven, not even 100,000? And they issue 90,000 deer permits per year. So... Uh, th- th- there's some mismanagement. There's some politics. There's some greed. It's um, some of these things really need to be looked at. Just as important as we do our our technology. A lot of debate here in Utah with trail cameras right now. Um, a lot well, of people looking at me like, "Hey, wh- what do you think? You run cameras." I'm like, "Look, the role of cameras is just to assess age class. I don't care what you're hunting. If you're putting out cameras to scout, you are assessing age class." Once you have that determined, then the hunt starts. Whether you have to pull those cameras before the hunt, whether you use them through, cameras don't kill animals. They help you assess what's there, and sometimes it helps because you find an animal you want, and you can work and work and work and work like I do, where you can sit like one of my hunters did for 19 days, and you actually kill that animal. Truck camera didn't kill the animal. All it did is tell us what was there, but... On the same note, the exact same note, and just as high odds, it's 50-50, I see guys get a picture of these animals, and they eat their tag trying to kill them. And so our state's doing a really piss-poor job of looking at what that actually is. They literally like got together and had a meeting and said, we've been hearing a lot of discussion about this. We feel like we need to address it. They said the word feel. Then they said, so we sent out a, a study to 1,400 random hunters, which is the most uneducated bullshit move they could pull. <laughs> if you, on any collegiate scale, you start with a focus group. 
But no, they want to go the easy way and send 1400 or whatever the number was, I don't remember, to hunters to say, how do you feel, again, feel about trail cameras? And they felt that it was this. So we feel as a, as a division that we need to address it and do this. I, dude, I was watching on my phone. Had I been home, I would have Elvised my gosh damn TV. <laughs> I, I, I've never been so mad in my life. Since when does conservation address issues based on feelings and social matters rather than fucking science? I was so upset. I'm still upset. I ran cameras for 20 years. I love it. It's a hobby. Does it help? Of course. But it helps in the fact that I get a look at what the age class is. I'm not walking onto some unit, passing a 340 bull on opening day, just to learn that a 340 bull doesn't exist on that unit, and I should have shot that. Mm-hmm. Like, that is what the role of a camera is. And so, and I don't well, know. Well, I find it interesting that you, you said on the inverse, too, because I've never thought about it this way, where... It's just as likely that, yeah, you're going to get that uh, 400 bull on camera, like, or some, you know, random dude is, and he's going to be hunting, he's going to be hunting his ass off, he's going to see a 360 bull, he's going to see a 380 bull, and he's going to be like, no, man. He's like, I know there's a 400 bull in here, and you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with going home empty-handed if that's his goal, but if his goal is to get a trophy-class animal with his bow, and he's passing this stuff up, just because he knows in the back of his head, oh, there's something bigger. You know, it it can be just as detrimental. Dude, some of us, I'm one of them, and this can be good and bad, and, and it has to be addressed within our division. Some of us just like to hunt. Mm-hmm. Straight up, I will eat almost any tag ever hits my pocket because I just, I'm good just sitting. I I go to Kansas, and I will sit in a tree for 10 days. I don't want to shoot an animal. I really, like, I'm good. Like, I want to see them come in. I want to see the biggest one possible. And if I'm sitting in Nebraska and I know my best buck that we kill is usually 140 and a 150 walks in, I'm shooting that thing, right? Like, that's what I want to do. That, But then the hunt's over. It's ruined. I like to hunt. I People can have their own definition of what that is. I, I will never say rifle hunting's bad. Rifle hunting's awesome. I don't like it. But I take clients all the time, and we have a great time. And, and you can do that with everything. Some guys love bears. They're crazy about bears. I, I see probably 10 bears a year. I walk into them all the time. <laughs> I feel like they're my dogs. Like, they look at you. They kind of make these faces. I've never had one be aggressive. Like, I'm like, cool. But some guys love to hunt them, and I'm glad they do because they need to be managed. I'm glad it's not me. Because... I really don't want to shoot a bear. I'm sure they're fine, but it's not my thing. So everyone needs to find what's important to them, and I'm glad we have all of us to decide what they like because mm-hmm. we all get to do different things. And that's going to create better supply and demand on all kinds of scales in different realms. Like I went to the sheep show yesterday, and, and I've done some sheep tags. I've never had a tag myself. I think I've done four deserts, two Rockies, um, and, and they're super fun. I went to Sheep Show, dumped $1,000 on tickets. They're calling names. I've never seen a, it's a weirder crowd. No one jumped on the table shouting yeehaw. Like there, was, there was no drama. Like, man, those sheep tags, talking about supply and demand, yeah. there's only 14,000 sheep a year. No, no, permits. 
issued a year for sheep. 14,000 total. That's that's from the Yukon to Mexico. I, I mean, that might even include like Russia. I, I would I would need to know. I need to look that up. But just in North America, we have 386,000 elk tags issued. Mm-hmm. Doesn't include Mexico. Doesn't include Canada. Doesn't include Mongolia and some of these other places that actually have elk. Dude, that is a lot of hunters. So when I go to that sheep show, if I had had my name pulled, dude, I would have jumped on my table and did a backflip. <laughs> like, and I mean, those are the successes. That's the fun, and and it's not killing the sheep. I honestly I, would have been sitting there myself thinking, like, how are you guys being so, cons- like, reserved right. and dignified right now? Because I'd be in the same boat as you were. I was shocked, yeah. But it was it was still fun. They they yeah. pulled some pretty good names. I, I don't know what they did at this show as far as sheep, as far as money went. Uh, it seemed like the, the Reno convention was uh, just, I, almost $7 million Damn. towards conservation just through sheep just sheep hunters mm-hmm. that's pretty freaking remarkable oh yeah yeah well i mean it, you want to talk about like the story of conservation like and and how dedicated hunters are to that it's like talk about sheep that is that is like the one thing because you know the first thing is like oh you only care about conservation because you want to you're going to go kill those animals and like sheep hunters know the likely or the people that are passionate about sheep know the likelihood of them actually drawing a sheep tag is pretty damn low yet yeah, they still dedicate their lives to the betterment of this species and it's, well, it's one of those wild things you, you want a good example the dude that killed that giant elk that we told a story about uh yeah he's got stupid money you know he's a billionaire a couple times over you you get into youtube you'll figure out who this guy is and i you know i don't care i um I personally, like, really love the guy. I have really tender feelings for this guy. I think he's a good person. But, you know, you can bitch. Yeah, he paid whatever it was, 400000 for that elk tag and hired all these guides. And you can talk all this crap. Um, New Mexico has a sheep herd that is only existing now because of this guy. Uh, what, what ended up happening is they, they had some sheep herd that kept migrating off the mountain. And in the winter, they had to cross a highway to get to their winter grounds. Well, they kept crossing the highway, and one by one, they were dying. They transplanted these sheep a couple times, and with a couple years, the whole herd was eradicated because of this highway. That dude that bought that really expensive Arizona elk tag in New Mexico before you could even hunt any of these sheep donated a few million dollars to build a fence along the highway to protect these sheep so they had safe places to cross. There is an existing herd of sheep in New Mexico that hadn't been there for hundreds of years right now because of that dude. So people can complain and people can be upset, but the fact of the matter is like a lot of heart has come from some of these tags and some of these guys with money because they know what it takes for these animals to survive. And they've taken a generous role to help out. So when I hear people complain about this guy in particular, I kind of get upset because they don't know where his heart sits. And I do. So, you know, it, it takes all type and it takes conversations like this to actually talk about it. And then people get a different perspective. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe he's kind of cool. Like, you know. Well, on that note, man, um, I always like to wind things down with, you know, say you're say you're hanging out somewhere and uh, some guy, you know, 
you run in, run into some guy, and he's like, he finds out you're a you're a hunting guide, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, man, I've always I've always wanted to do that. Like hunting sounds, you know, I, I love the idea of it, you know, but there's just seems expensive. There's so much to learn. There's a, a I I don't know anyone that that does it. Ah, he gets a little intimidated. What what encouragement might you give that a guy like that? Hunting doesn't require a permit. I don't need to have tag in hand to learn how to hunt. Like, I literally get up in the mornings before I go to the gym and go look at elk almost every single day of the week. I don't need a permit in hand. I haven't had a Utah elk tag since 2003, yet I've seen some of the biggest elk ever to live fall. And I'm doing it right now, watching one of the biggest bulls in the state of Utah on his wintering ground just because I like to see him. It's a blessing that a lot of people walk over. We get to live in America. We get to get up and do what we want. I'm telling you, man, I get up in the morning. I cook eggs for my dog. I grab my spotter. I go out for 45 minutes. I look at elk. I go to the gym, and I go to my job, and I make some money, and I come home to start it the next day. Hunting doesn't require a permit. Everything comes in baby steps. Just get your ass out the door and, and learn some stuff. Super easy. That is the best advice I can give anybody. The permits come, the knowledge no, comes, the, the regulation information all gets learned. And, and, and even when you have all those pieces, you still screw up every now and then. And screwing up's okay. Like, that's how we get better. So I just try to tell people, just get outside. You don't need a permit. Just get outside and enjoy it. So if folks wanted to check out some of these big bowls and see what you're up to, where can they find you online? Um... I, you know, every social media platform, I, I have something on there. I really only lately, probably, probably since COVID, I kind of backed off. Social media was a great platform for me to, like, kind of prove my existence, show some <laughs> of these big elk that were dying. Once I got the respect of a couple, like, guys that I really looked up to, my motivation dropped <laughs> because, in all reality, I just love elk. I love seeing them, and that's, like, that's what I do. And so social media have kind of fallen off, but I probably update my Instagram the most, you know, but it's only 20 or 30 posts a year. I just like, probably doing stuff like this probably gets my name out more than anything. So I appreciate you having me on. No, I'm glad we glad we got to reconnect, uh, effectively uh, record one podcast, but have two. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time sitting down, man. Yeah. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more.